Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 1, actually. We're eventually going to get to Luke chapter 7, but we're going to start out in Luke chapter 1 before we get there as we continue this journey through the gospel of Luke. Some of you may be familiar with the missionary whose name is Adoniram Judson. That's kind of a funny name, Adoniram. But Adoniram Judson was a missionary to the nation of Burma. Burma's kind of been in the news lately. It's, it's also called Myanmar. Back in the early 1800s. And as he was traveling to Burma, his wife suffered a miscarriage on the boat. And they lost their first child before they even got on the mission field. Well, before they went to Burma, they had to go to India first because India is close by Burma. And they had to meet with the missionaries in India. And as they met with the missionaries in India, they were told over and over again, don't go to Burma. God can't do anything in Burma. That's a hard-to-reach people in Burma. You're just wasting your time. Stay here in India. Don't go to Burma. So they spent a year in India before they actually got to Burma after getting all these messages of discouragement of why they shouldn't go. In 1813, they moved to Burma, and Judson and his wife, they spent four years, four years learning the language before they had any public worship services because they wanted to understand how to communicate. So their first worship service was in 1819. And about 15 men at that time showed up to the worship service. And after a few weeks, they lost interest, and so there really wasn't anybody coming. And so in 1823, 10 years after his arrival in Burma, his church grew to a whopping 18 people after 10 years of ministry. He had finished his first draft of the translation of the entire New Testament in Burmese. Now think about this for a moment. He ministered and prayed and preached for 10 years only to see 18 people come to faith. As a pastor, I have to think about that because I've been here over 16 years. And I think it would be very discouraging for me to be at a place for 16 years and only have maybe a handful of people coming. Now, it's not about numbers because some of our growth groups are even larger than his church. But think about that. 10 years and 18 people. In 1824, war broke out between England and, and Burma. And, and Judson was in prison for 17 months. And while he was in prison, his wife was beaten. His wife was dragged to prison. And she eventually died of disease in prison. Six months later, their three children died. So not only did he miscarriage, his wife miscarriage their first child on the way to Burma, while he's in prison, his three children die. Now, after this, he was released, and he married a widow. And he remarried. She had some medical problems, and so she had to go back to America to get some, some relief. And on her way back, she, too, died on the way back. 
he worked for 15 more years in Burma planning churches and ministry. And I, I wonder if Adoniram Judson ever thought to himself, is this worth it? Is this really worth it? I mean, to leave America, come all this way, to lose my children, to lose two wives to death, did, did I sign up for this? You know, his goal going to Burma was simply he had two goals. Number one, he wanted to translate the New Testament into Burmese, and he wanted to have at least one church of 100 people. Well, by the time of his death, he accomplished this and more. He had a translated Bible as well as a half-completed Burmese English dictionary. He had 100 churches with over 8,000 believers. And due to his influence to this day, there are more Baptists in Burma than there are in a lot of other nations in the world. America and India have the highest number, but I think Burma has the third largest number of Baptists because of his ministry. And I wonder if he had periods of doubt, disappointment, questioning if he had done the right thing. Wondered to himself, is this worth it? I wonder if he ever understood the impact he would have on generations of believers in South Asia. Doubt, discouragement, disappointment. Today's passage in Luke is pretty difficult. It took me a lot of time to figure out what exactly Luke is saying. Its focus is on John the Baptist and some things that John the Baptist was in, enduring. And so before we actually jump into the text in Luke chapter 7, I think it, we need to set up the situation here because we're going to do a little biography on John the Baptist because it's important to understand who he is and why he's experiencing what he's experiencing as we get to Luke chapter 7. So I want us to go back to the very beginning. So go back to Luke chapter 1 when the angel announces to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they are indeed going to have a child. And I just want you to think about all the, the unique things about John the Baptist. So Luke chapter 1, verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's a unique situation there. It's said of John the Baptist before he's even born, when he's in his mother's womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to have the Spirit upon him. Now think about John from an early age growing up, what his parents would have told him. You had the Holy Spirit in you before you were even born, John. And your entire mission, John, is to point to Jesus, your cousin, who's six years younger than you. And so you move on to the scene here, and in Luke chapter 3, let's go to Luke chapter 3. He comes out, he's a grown man, he's preaching, he's pointing the way to the Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and even rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So from infancy, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He comes on the scene. He's preaching the gospel of repentance, pointing people to Jesus. And then eventually, he baptizes Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3, 13-15, it says Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So I want you to think about John's life. From before he's born, he has the Holy Spirit in him. He's been told from a very early age, even by an angel to his parents, you're going to prepare the way for the Messiah. You're going to announce the coming of Jesus. You're going to be the one that's going to be the forerunner. You're going to go out in the wilderness. You're going to preach. You're going to baptize Jesus. If there's anybody on this earth who knew what his mission was and knew who Jesus was, it was John the Baptist, his cousin. In John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, his disciples, John's disciples, are getting a little anxious because John had a baptism ministry, but everybody seems to be going to Jesus now. They're not coming to John anymore. They're going to Jesus. And, and John's disciples are getting a little nervous saying, Jesus, you're losing out in market share. I mean, John, you're losing out in market share. Everybody's going to Jesus. That's not a good thing. We're, we're kind of fading off into the distance, and Jesus is getting more popular. What are you going to do about it, John? Because Jesus is getting more popular than you. This was read earlier in our time of confession, but listen to John's answer to his disciples, to his followers who were concerned about Jesus getting greater. John 3, 27 through 30. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete he must increase but i must decrease john is basically saying listen i'm the best man at the wedding not the groom my job is to help the groom get ready my job is to help the groom take the bride the bride of christ and so the focus is on jesus not on me anymore and so John says there in verse 30, I must keep on continually, it's in the verb tense, continually decreasing. He must keep on continually increasing. I'm fading on the scene of history. Jesus is now center stage. He must increase. I must decrease. So that's John's life. Anointed from birth with the Holy Spirit preparing the way of the Lord, baptizing Jesus, and then saying to everybody, I'm fading off the scene, now it's Jesus. Now, he, we pick up where we are today in Luke chapter 7, and Luke chapter 7 doesn't tell us a very significant detail, but Matthew's gospel does. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, we find out that John the Baptist is in prison. So he's in prison, suffering, for his preaching ministry. Why is he in prison? 
because he got in the face of Herod, the Tetrarch. Because Herod had divorced his wife and unlawfully married his brother's sister. And John the Baptist said, that's unlawful, that's sexually immoral, I'm calling you out on it. And Herod says, okay, I'm going to put you in jail. So here we have John sitting in prison. John, you want to decrease while Jesus increases? I'm decreasing here in prison. I'm fading into the sunset here in prison. So that's where we are in our text this morning. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, and let's look at this very difficult passage of Scripture. There's a lot of things we would, as I was doing sermon prep, I'm like, there's a lot of things I wish Luke would have told us that he doesn't, that you kind of have to go other places and, and really kind of figure out what's going on here. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 7, this is our text for today. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him while he's in prison, Matthew tells us. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those are, who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All right, you guys ready to tackle this tough passage of scripture and figure out what's going on? It divides into two parts, at least for this morning. Verses 18 through 23 focuses on John the Baptist. Verses 24 through 28 focus on Jesus in his commentary about John the Baptist. And so let's look at this. Here's the first part. John is plagued by doubt and disappointment in coming to grips with who Jesus truly is. John's in prison. John sends messengers. Jesus, are, are, you, real, are you the real deal? Are you the one to come, or should we be waiting for somebody else? Now, the Bible here doesn't tell us why John sends these messengers to Jesus to find out if he truly is the Messiah. We have to kind of guess. We do know he's suffering in prison. And so perhaps, as a man suffering in prison, he's thinking to himself, this stinks. I'm alone. 
I'm rotting here in prison. I've spent my entire life pointing to this Jesus, and here I am in prison, and I'm discouraged, and I have doubts. Is Jesus really the one that I was supposed to be pointing to? Is he really the real deal? Did I get it right? Did I go out into the wilderness and eat locusts and dress in camel skin and preach and point people to Jesus? And what, was I wrong? Is he really the one that's to come or should we be looking for somebody else? Was it all in vain? Is he really the Messiah? Now, why does John have a problem with Jesus? We kind of have to put some pieces together here. What was the main content of John the Baptist's preaching about the coming Messiah? Let's go backtrack. I kind of skipped over this, but let's go backtrack in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, this is the part and parcel of what John's message was about the Messiah. Okay, John's a fiery preacher. John's preaching a baptism of repentance. What's the content of John's preaching? So in verses 16 and 17, John answered them saying, I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a seeker-sensitive message. Jesus is coming with his winnowing fork, and he's ready to send people to hell that aren't going to follow him. Unquenchable fire. And John's thinking to himself, all I keep hearing about Jesus is he's kind of like healing people, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's raising people from the dead, and he's healing lepers. Where's this justice stuff that he's supposed to be doing? Perhaps John thought to himself, I want Jesus to execute immediate justice on his enemies. I want to see this winnowing fork. I want to see this unquenchable fire. I want Jesus to come in power. Because look at verse 18. Let's go back to chapter 7. How does this whole setup happen? Verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. All these things to him. Now, we can look contextually and say, okay, what has just happened in Luke chapter 7? What have we just seen? He healed a centurion's servant, and he raised a widow's son from the grave. These things he's seen. We also know, if we just backtrack in Luke, that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He cured lepers. He healed the disabled man that was brought through the roof. He performed miracles. Jesus is showing compassion upon the crowds. He's healing their diseases. He's preaching the gospel. He's receiving Gentiles. And perhaps John is wanting more than this. Why waste your time, Jesus, on healing a Gentile servant when the Romans need to be dealt with in justice? I want to remind you of the pattern here in chapter 7. Okay. What have we seen the past two weeks? Okay, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10... Jesus heals the centurion's servant. All's well that ends well. He gets healed, right? Okay, in the next section, the widow's son, he heals and brings back to life. All's well that ends well. These are two great stories. There's a healing. There's a resurrection. All's well that ends well. And so we go through this little um, scenario of all's well that ends well. Then all of a sudden, you get this, this situation here with John the Baptist. And if you're going to keep with the theme of all's well that ends well, what do you expect to happen next? 
Jesus barges in and releases John from prison. All's well, then ends well. Do you find anything in this passage of Scripture about Jesus saying, Oh, John, by the way, I'm going to come release you. You're going to get out. No. It's not all well that ends well. It could be that John's like, Listen, I hear Jesus is a miracle worker. How come he's not over here letting me out of prison? I want immediate release out of prison. So the controversy here is really around Jesus' ministry methods. John doesn't understand Jesus' ministry methods. Why isn't Jesus, number one, executing justice with the, the winnowing fork and unquenchable fire? Number two, why isn't he letting me out of prison? Now, here's the question. Will Jesus one day come back in wrath and in power and glory at the end of the age and bring judgment? Yes. When is that going to happen? At the end of the age, at the second coming. He will execute justice. He will have the winnowing fork. There will be unquenchable fire. But at this point in history, that's not Jesus' mission. His mission is to heal and to preach and to teach and to present the gospel and to be the Messiah come for the people and eventually to die on the cross. It's not time yet for executing justice. And so in verse 22, Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what I'm doing. Okay, look at verse 22. And not anything in verse 22 says, go back to John and tell him I'm going to come get him out of prison. Look at what he says there in verse 22. He answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Okay, he lists five things there that, that Jesus is doing. Number one, the blind receive sight. Number two, the lame walk. Number three, lepers are cleansed. Number four, the deaf hear. Number five, the dead are raised up. There's a sixth thing there, but I'm going to get there in just a moment. Now, these are all activities that the prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would come and do. You can go back to Isaiah and read about a lot of these, but let me just give you one verse that talks about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 35, 5-6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus is doing what Isaiah prophesied he would do. He's giving sight to the blind. He's preaching. He's healing. He's showing compassion. And, and the last thing it says there in verse 22, he's preaching the good news to the poor. doesn't mean people who are physically poor. It means those who understand their sin and need salvation, need forgiveness. Jesus is preaching good news to the poor. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon when he went to his hometown of Nazareth and he pulled out that Isaiah scroll and he preaches the gospel? Backtrack again. I keep taking you back. Backtrack again to, to chapter 4. We're in the gospel of Luke for, for the morning here, all, all through the first seven chapters here. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. He opens the scroll of Isaiah. What does he read? He reads from Isaiah 61, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to do what? What's your mission, Jesus? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor. My job, Jesus says, is to present the good news, to heal, to bring liberty, to bring, to bring forgiveness. Now, it's very interesting because Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61. 
I want to read to you Isaiah 61, and I want to see you what Jesus purposely leaves out when he reads it in the synagogue in Nazareth. I hope you see it here, okay? So it's going to be on your screen. What, what did he, he just quoted from Isaiah 61. Let's, let's read Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and see what Jesus purposely leaves out. The Spirit of the Lord is, of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Okay, that sounds familiar. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord, Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. What did Jesus conveniently leave out when he preached the synagogue sermon there in Nazareth? He left out vengeance. He left out the day of vengeance. Now, does this mean that Jesus doesn't think there's going to be a day of judgment? Absolutely not. Again, the issue is the timing. Jesus' message as the coming Messiah was to come at this point in history to proclaim liberty, to proclaim forgiveness, to heal diseases, to cure the people, to be a, a man that would come and provide hope for those that were hopeless, not to execute immediate justice. But John the Baptist doesn't understand that. John's thinking, where's the fiery Jesus coming with the winnowing for? And how come he's not ousting Rome and getting me out of prison? Verse 23 is the punchline. In verse 23, let's go back to, to Luke chapter 7. Okay, we're going to be in Luke 7 now, okay? We're back to Luke 7. Verse 23, this is directed at John the Baptist specifically because it's, in the, it's, it's directed to him. Blessed is the one, singular, who is not offended by me. Offended, literally scandalized. It could mean angered, shocked, appalled, repelled. See, here's the issue. John was offended at Jesus because of unmet expectations. Jesus didn't fit the profile of what he thought the Messiah would be. Perhaps John is offended that he didn't get the answer he wanted. I want you to come get me out of prison. I like this passage of Scripture because it's so real to what a lot of us go through from time to time. A lot of us have been like John the Baptist, haven't we? Maybe not in prison. But remember his words in John 3.30? What what's John the Baptist's famous words? He must keep what? Increasing. I must keep decreasing. If you're going to live like that in the real world you got to think about the implications of what that means. When you choose to become lesser and for him to become greater, what does that mean? It often means that you're going to go through times of doubt. You're going to go through times of discouragement. You're going to go through times of disappointment. And you may think to yourself, when you go through a time of doubt or discouragement, I don't know, don't raise your hands, but maybe some of you have thought this before. You're sitting there in the middle of discouragement, and you're thinking to yourself, did I sign up for this Christianity thing? Was I right? Did I, did I, read, the blue, did I read the fine print? What did I sign up for? Is this what it's all about? Following Jesus? Think about John's journey for a moment. He's given his entire life to elevating Jesus, pointing to Jesus, baptizing Jesus, 
being empowered by the Holy Spirit to talk about Jesus. And here he is, sitting alone in prison with real doubts and disappointments. You see, when you follow Jesus and things don't go your way, and you face discouragement or you face disappointment, do you get offended by Jesus? Do you get mad that Jesus doesn't fit into your nice little box of what you want him to be? He doesn't meet your expectations. See, here's the issue. We get discouraged when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. Key word being our. Our box. Our timetable. Our agenda. Because let me just remind you of something. And John the Baptist knew this. If you're going to really live by that statement, he must increase and I must decrease, if you're going to really follow Jesus and let that be the, the heartbeat of your life, that's costly. Because of what it means is you've got to die to yourself. And you've got to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And it means that you might have to suffer for Christ. Listen to what Jesus would say later on. Luke 9, 23 through 25. This is Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is the life of the Christian. A life of self-denial. A life where Jesus is the focus. A life where you submit your, yourself to, to Christ's agenda, Christ's will, Christ's plan. And when he doesn't fit into your box, do you get all bent out of shape? Because your plans have been messed up by the Lord. John the Baptist is sitting there in prison. Did I get it wrong? This is costly. I've spent my entire life pointing to Jesus, and this is what I get. I'm, I'm here in prison. Is he really the one? Are you offended when things don't go your way? You know, millions of Americans have been sold a bill of goods with uh, name it, claim it, prosperity, word, faith, gospel that says you should never suffer, you should always be wealthy, you should never be sick, you should have everything that you want, and if you just name it and claim it, it'll be yours. They don't talk about the fact that if you want to follow Christ, you may have to give up your convenience. You may have to give up your comfort. You may have to give up some things that you really like in order to trust in him as Lord. Jesus gets to define his ministry, not you. Now, John is in the long stream of prophets who have suffered for pointing people to Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us about these people in that great hall of faith, Hebrews 11. At the end of Hebrews 11, he doesn't give names, but we can go back and find out who he's talking about. In Hebrews 11, 36 to 38, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated of those whom the world was not worthy 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens of the caves of the earth. Who's he talking about? Well, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He was mocked and flogged and imprisoned. Zechariah the prophet was stoned in the temple courtyard in 2 Chronicles 24. Scripture doesn't tell us this, but history tells us that Jeremiah was probably stoned by those unbelieving Jews in Egypt when he was confronting them about their disobedience. Scripture doesn't tell us this, but history tells us that Isaiah was probably sawn in two. He went and hid in a tree, and they probably sawed him in two, Isaiah. Uriah the prophet was killed by a sword in 1 Kings 18. Elijah and Elijah went around in goatskins. And John the Baptist is here the last of this line of Old Testament prophets pointing to Jesus. And here he is in prison, suffering, discouraged, doubting. Did I get it right? But this is not the end of the story. Because in the second part here, Jesus elevates John and tells everybody, it's worth it for John because you need to know something about him. Here's what you need to know about John. So here's the second thing. In the second part here, verses 24 through 28, Jesus explains why John is blessed and why you are as well. Now, John was the most popular preacher in Israel. People came and they flocked to hear him preach. They came out to the wilderness to see this, this crazy guy that ate grasshoppers and wore camel skins and just was a fiery preacher. People came out to see him. And Jesus gives three, three statements here of why they came out. Notice what he says there in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Is John the Baptist a flimsy little reed that if a breeze comes by, breaks him in half? No, John's no coward. John was strong. John was confrontational. John preached truth. John was not afraid to call people to repentance. John was an oak. Would that more pastors in America be an oak rather than a reed that breaks in the wind. We've got a lot of reeds that are breaking in the wind because they're afraid to stand strong and be like John the Baptist and say, thus saith the Lord, there's Jesus, repent and believe in him. Would that there be more oaks like John the Baptist. What did you go out to see, a guy in fine clothes? That's where kings hang out. No, this guy eats grasshoppers and, and wears camel skins. He's not dressed in splendid clothing, in the luxury of king's courts. Did you go out thirdly to see a prophet? Well, yeah, but he's more than a prophet. He's the greatest man ever to live. Did you catch that? Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus says, while John's in prison, I'm not going to get you out of prison, but I want you all to know he's the greatest man that's ever lived. There's been no man born of woman that's greater than John because he was the one that was announced that would come declare my coming. Back in Malachi 3.1, the very last verse of the Old Testament, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He's coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see, all those Old Testament prophets... Elijah, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah, all those prophets. They announced the coming of the Messiah. 
but they never actually got to see the Messiah. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets and the greatest because he not only got to announce the coming of Jesus, he got to see Jesus with his own eyes. He got to baptize Jesus with his own hands. Something that none of those other guys got to do. Now, some of those other guys in the Old Testament, they got to um, raise the dead. They got to part a Red Sea. They got to be in the lion's den. But John gets to stand there and, and point to Jesus and say there in John 1.29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the hinge upon which the Old Testament swings to the new. He's the last Old Testament prophet, but he's the only prophet that could actually point to Jesus physically and baptize Jesus. And then he's the one that says, Jesus is now on the center stage. I'm decreasing. So much so to the point that he's in prison. And here's the punchline in verse 28. I tell you, those born among women, none is greater than John yet. This doesn't quite make sense, so what does it mean? Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what do you mean, Jesus? You just said he's the greatest man that ever lived, but you're saying the least in the kingdom is greater than John? Which is it? What's your point, Jesus? What Jesus is saying here is, as great as John the Baptist is in the fact that he baptized me and he pointed to me, let me remind you of something. The baby Christian, the newest Christian, the person that's just first believed, the least in the kingdom, they're greater than John because they're on this side of the resurrection. They're on this side of the cross. They're on this side of Pentecost. You who are here today have a greater privilege than John ever did. He died never seeing Jesus rise from the dead. He died never seeing Pentecost. You have the privilege of trusting in Christ, having the Holy Spirit, being equipped and empowered on this side of the cross, Something that John never experienced. Now, there's a punchline at the end of both of these sections. Verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Verse 28, the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What do these two punchlines have in common? I think they convey the same meaning, but they do it in a negative way and in a positive way. The first is the negative one. Verse 23, negatively, what you're not supposed to do. Don't be offended by Jesus. Don't get angry or rebel against Jesus. Don't fight against Jesus. Don't try to manipulate Jesus. Don't try to force him into your mold. Don't get angry when he doesn't meet your expectations. Don't fight against Jesus. That's the negative. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. You're blessed if you don't get angry at Jesus, if you're not offended by Jesus. But positively, there in verse 28, receive the kingdom of God as a child, the least of these. Trust in Jesus. Find your joy in Jesus. Believe in Jesus for salvation. Receive the free gift of salvation. Become a member of the family of God through Jesus. So they're two sides of the same coin. Don't reject Jesus. Instead, receive Jesus. Don't be offended by Jesus. 
but like a child, receive the kingdom of Jesus. And if you do that, you will find that Jesus stands ready, willing, and able to forgive you and to receive you and to cleanse you. And so here's the thing that we need to think about. If you're going to live your life by John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. You've got to really understand what that means. That means he's really going to increase and you're really going to decrease. And if things don't go the way you want them to go, are you going to fight Jesus? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get upset? Are you going to just submit to him and say, Jesus is part of your plan. You just keep on increasing. I'm going to keep decreasing. I'm going to take up my cross daily. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to be offended by you, but I'm going to follow you because I'm least in the kingdom and I'm trusting you. He must increase. I must decrease. Would that be the heartbeat of every single body, of every single person that's here this morning? He must increase. I must decrease. Let me ask you to pray. Father, we come before you today. And Lord, I, I have to admit that this has been a very difficult passage of Scripture. There's a lot of things in here I don't know if I still understand, but one thing I do know is all, all of us go through times of disappointment, times of discouragement, times of doubt. And I'm thankful you have this passage of Scripture in here because it shows us that John the Baptist, a man who had the Holy Spirit and actually baptized Jesus in the flesh, went through doubts. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to know that as you keep increasing and we keep decreasing, that may, that may be uncomfortable. That may, that may be uh, not a place we want to be, Lord, but it's the best place to be because we're in your will. So, Lord, would you encourage those here this morning that may be discouraged? Would you strengthen the faith of those here this morning that may have doubts? Lord, I'm not sure what everybody's going through in this room, but maybe there are some people that are struggling with some things. Lord, would you just, in this very moment, confirm your grace to them through the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you let them know deep in their hearts that you're real, that you're there, that you're powerful? And Lord, help us not to be offended by you, but instead to receive you as little children, the least of those in the kingdom. Thank you for your grace and mercy and your power. Will we keep our eyes fixed on you this week? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.